All right, this morning we spent two hours introducing really our study to the tabernacle. In fact, if you think about it, we've spent four hours now and we still haven't even gotten to the tabernacle yet because we spent two hours talking about typology and then we spent two hours this morning talking about two very important words, which are perpetual parentheses, right? Perpetual parentheses. The perpetual refers to idolatry. That's the perpetual sin. That's in all of us. My approach to idolatry is different than everyone else. Everyone tends to approach idolatry by looking where? Outside. Even when they do look inside, they say that the heart produces the idol, but I believe the heart really, in a sense, it is the false god. We are the false god we worship, and everything that we look to, we look to because it brings us some kind of pleasure, some kind of satisfaction. Someone this morning was asking, so what do we do about this perpetual problem? Like, How do we fix it? How do we resolve it? Now, that's a very good question, right? And I know this is not really a part of this, but what's the real answer to it? We cannot fix it. Okay? We can, well, first of all, we can do is acknowledge it, and we can just see, right? We, we just have to be honest sometimes. Like whether we like to admit it sometimes, we, we act like we are God and we treat the God of the universe as if he is there to serve us. We have to see when that motivation is there. Sometimes when I'm doing even a good thing for someone, I'm doing it for my benefit. You have to be willing to admit it. Do we like seeing it? No. Do we like to admit it? No. Do I wish I could stop it? Yes. I think this is the, I think, We kind of stumbled upon this, and this is not really the point of the message, but I think it's important for us to realize this, okay? Whenever we are confronted with the reality of ourself, right? In other words, we open up the Bible, we see that there's a perpetual problem called idolatry. When I describe idolatry the way I do, which I believe I can support from Scripture, when we realize this, we are acknowledging the reality of ourself. And immediately, the mind in the evangelical world is to do what? How do I fix it? Give me four steps. What are four steps to stop it? Four steps to do this. Four se- and I, I know we want those solutions, but really the only solution is, I'm a sinner. I, I treat myself as if I'm God. I treat everything else as if it's supposed to serve and worship me. Lord, forgive me, and we can only run to his grace and to his mercy. We can only, well, in a sense, we can only run to the gospel, right? Because in Christ, that is not true of me. Outside of Christ, it is. And, but everybody wants a solution, a solution, a solution. Like all the solutions Christianity has come up with. Do you know how many books have been sold telling Christians how to fix this and 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 how to fix this? And I don't care how many things you fix. You're still going to be a sinner. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't care, but I'm saying we have to just realize the first thing is just admitting it and running to Christ and finding comfort in the gospel. But we always think there's a solution. And just think about it from a logical perspective. All of our problems flow from what? All of our problems flow from what? A sinful nature. Until that sinful nature is gone... All you're doing is trying to, it's like you're trying, it's like a, you're trying to put a band-aid on like an amputation, okay? Like, like there's, you're not gonna stop it. Like it's, you're, you're trying to put your thumb, the dam is bursting, right? There's whole, there, the thing is flooding and you're like, I'm gonna go put my finger in this one little hole and stop it. Yeah, but there's a thousand gallons per minute coming in on the other side, right? It's like, and I know that that's not what Christians want to hear. We always want solutions. So you, so sermon after sermon is always designed to do what? Provide you the solution. And then everybody's like, amen, pastor, I'm going to go home and I'm going to do that. And I'm going to memorize that scripture and I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to be good and I'm going to do this and I'm going to be submissive and I'm going to, but the reality is the nature, if the nature is the problem, All the things you're simply going after are just external manifestations of the nature. You may go after one or two, but the problem is inside. The call is coming from inside the house. I'm like, that's, that's the problem using that reference from an old movie. Okay. That's the issue. All right. So I know that's not what everyone wants. And I know when we come to this, we're seeing that the perpetual problem is real. All right. So there was the perpetual problem idolatry. All right. What was the parentheses? 
There's two aspects to the parentheses. What was the parentheses? Okay, what chapters? 32 to 34 of Exodus. So the first parentheses is Exodus 32 through 34, right? That it, because it starts with the kind of God giving Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, right? right? So you have this, all these instructions, and then all of a sudden, the instructions are interrupted with 32 to 34, right? And that parentheses, that's a literal parentheses in the Bible, we'll call it the Exodus parentheses, but it's a parentheses dealing with idolatry. So we can, if we want to be more accurate, the idolatry parentheses found in the book of Exodus. All right? Now, why are we looking at this textual parentheses? Because to me, when I'm reading Exodus, all of a sudden, in chapter 24 going into chapter 25, it appears to me out of nowhere that God's like, build me a sanctuary. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Build you a sanctuary? Why hasn't there been a sanctuary with sinful men before then? Because it seems God cannot dwell in the midst of sinful people. Well, the sinful people aren't any, they're not any less sinful, right? They're just as bad as they've been. Okay, so, so what's that? So immediately to me, that makes me go, why and how? How is he going to do this and why is he going to do this? It makes no sense. Well, not only do I, does that catch me off guard, then I get to this textual issue where there's a parentheses and the parentheses emphasizes the sinful nature of the people, which makes me bring up even more like, well, then why or how are you going to have a tabernacle, right? So that creates an, a, a whole issue. So I believe somehow with inside that parentheses, the how and the why has to be present in some way, shape, or form, or it may be picturing something bigger. Because not only is there the idolatry parentheses in Exodus 32 to 34, I think there's a larger parentheses. And that parentheses goes from Exodus, where God dwells with men, or I'm sorry, Genesis, thank you. Genesis, where God dwells with men in the garden, right? Okay, men and women, or man and woman, right? And then it show, and then God's dwelling again in Revelation. In between Revelation and Genesis, there's a parentheses. And guess what? The, that, guess what's in the midst of that parentheses? Idolatry, perpetual sin. So how can God dwell in the midst? Well, I think that the, the answer to how God can dwell in their midst points to the way in which we're going to ultimately dwell in the midst of, God's going to dwell in the midst of us, right? And then that ultimately points to the solution may be found in John chapter 1, where in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, jump down to verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, which means to tabernacle. And so I believe that if we can figure out the, the, if the parentheses in Exodus gives us the why and the how God could dwell amongst them, that they answer to that why and how, and that tabernacle points us to the ultimate tabernacle, Right? Christ coming to tabernacle amongst us, which then will be this resolution to our parentheses where God will dwell with us for all eternity. Does you see how I'm putting all of that together? Right? That's where you're supposed to go, ooh, ah, oh, wow, that's just really good. Okay, right? I, I don't know if everyone's catching on, but okay. So we looked at Exodus. What chapter did we look at this morning? Well, oh, what? Your notes aren't that cool? Oh, they, okay. Oh, that's not, is that because of me? Kind of? Okay, why? In what way? Did I do something wrong or you, just the way I've presented it? Oh, okay. Well, when you get those reworked, turn it into a PDF and send it to me. Okay, all right? And then I can tell everyone, here is the way the note should have been preached. <laughs> but, but, I, but at the same time, I, I do, look, I do understand I could have done it in a little different way, but I'm trying to purposely walk through it this way, okay? There is a method to my madness, okay? All right, there is a method to my madness, okay? I'm trying to build one so that we can expand to the other. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. So, to look at the parentheses, which chapters are involved in the parentheses? 32 to 34. We looked at Exodus 32. 
And what did we discover in Exodus 32? Did we see a perpetual problem? Okay. Well, we saw the problem first, idolatry, a golden calf, right? Okay. And then we saw someone involved in trying to fix this perpetual problem to some level. When we say fix it, didn't fix it by changing them, but fixed it by keeping them from being wiped off the face of the earth, right? Okay. And, and how did this occur? Through Moses, and Moses served as what things in this chapter, or what things were presented in Exodus 32 that I think are key to how God is going to be able to dwell amongst them, and the ultimate solution to how God, we will dwell with God and God will dwell with us ultimately. Moses served as, number one, a mediator. Number two, an advocate. Number three, intercessor. Number four, there was judgment, right? Which is always required. Wherever there is sin, there's going to be judgment. Everyone understand that? No matter what, there's going to be judgment. And then there's an atonement. All of that. It, and does not all of that point not only to that tabernacle that's being constructed, right? I think it does. Remember these elements when we start looking at the tabernacle, okay? Remember all of those elements, yes? Okay. And we clearly think it points to Christ, do we not? Who is the ultimate, in a sense, tabernacled among us, in a sense, serves in a similar way, right? Remember, we believe that there's at least some picture developing here. And trust me, without a mediator, without an advocate, without an intercessor, without sin being judged in some capacity for us or on our behalf, and without an atonement, does Christ ever dwell in our midst? Does God? No, never. We never ever get to Revelation. Does that make sense? Right, I, I, think it's, I think it's very, very important. So we finished 32, right? And when 32 ended, it ended kind of weird, right? Well, we got there, verse 35. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. There's, a, there's almost a... A, a continuing punishment is occurring, yes? And really, if you think about it, 32, what was the kind of the main question in 32? Are these people going to be wiped off the face of the earth? Because he wanted to wipe them all out and start over, right? That's kind of the question. Now, the, que- now the question is, what is the main question in chapter 33? Everybody ready? Exodus chapter 33. Let's, I'm gonna, we're going to read first. A little ways, and then I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm reading summaries from a, an article. Remember, I'm using two sources today. Kind of put together. Well, not really even put together. I'm just using two sources. Okay, all right, here we go. Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Depart and go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, unto thy seed will I give it. Now what's comforting is what is remembered in verse 1 of chapter 33. The covenant. Now he's like going, and he's basing it, is he basing it on the behavior of the people? No. Is he basing it on future hope that they will act better? No. It's based off what God has promised. And remember, any hope for us is not based on what we can do, but what God has done for us. Very law gospel concepts are showing up here. Verse 2, and I will, please note, God's, look, I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now, please note, though, from just a reading perspective, this seems odd to me, right? Because it was just in 25 that he said, build a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. Now he's like, you take the people, Moses, and I'm going to send an angel before them. And you're like, well, wait a minute. I thought you were going to dwell in the midst of them. It's almost like, how does this narrative fit the other narrative? Because this interrupted the narrative of how to build the tabernacle, right? So then why in the world, why wouldn't God just say, I'm going to go with you? Seems a little odd. Do you agree? 
I think so, all right? And he says, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in the midst of thee. Wait, what? Everybody want to circle that? Everybody see that? Exodus 33.3? Wait, I will not go up in the midst of thee. Okay, I'm sorry. What did he say in 25.8? Is it 25.7 or 25.8? Someone look at 25.7 or 25.8. I always, it's numbers, so forgive me for my numbers being wrong. Twenty-five, seven, or twenty-five, eight, eight, and he says, "All right, in twenty-five, eight, build me a sanctuary so I may dwell in the midst of them or amongst them." However, is it used among them or in the midst of them? Among them, okay. And then all of a sudden we get to thirty-three, and he says, "What? I will not go up in the midst of a stiff-necked people." And you're like, "Well, wait a minute." I thought you were going to build a tabernacle. Do you see why I believe this parenthesis is so important? Okay, I, I want you to start. At this point, I'm hoping you're like, oh, the, the pieces are coming together. This is, this is intriguing. Right? Intriguing minds want to know, well, wait a minute. Well, then how is it ever going to occur? Because are the people going to stop being stiff-necked? Wait, now wait a minute. If God cannot, if God will not dwell in the midst of a stiff-necked people, then we're all in trouble. Or at least all of you, all right? Okay, all of us are in trouble. So so what's going to happen here? And when the people, okay, let me, verse three, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. Why can he not dwell in the midst of them? Because he can't. He will consume them. He will destroy them. That's, but see, to me, that's what makes Exodus 25 make no sense. God has not been able to dwell in the midst of them since the garden. That's why he put them out of the garden, right? So why in 25 he's like, hey, build me a sanctuary. And I can do it. But here he's like, I can't do it. Well, wait a minute. Then why were you? Remember, this is, this is interrupting the literal instructions to build it. And immediately when this parenthesis is over, go right back to the instructions. Well, how can you be given the instructions to build something that you're telling me you can't do? Like, I don't understand. That, see, this is where, remember, what do I always tell you? When the text is screaming at you that, wait a minute, something else is going on, that's where you have as a Bible student, you've got to stop and go, this is fascinating here. This is this to me is fascinating. All right, so what happens? And when the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned, and no man did put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I will come up into the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore now put off thy ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee. So if he is going to show up, he's showing up to consume them. Remember, the whole issue here is what? Are these people ever going to even survive? And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. So they're, 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 they're like, they want to survive right now. They just want to live. Now here, this is crazy. Look what happens in verse 7. And Moses took the... Verse 7? The tabernacle. Well, wait, 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 wait. Wait a minute. Wait, wait. The tabernacle. Wait, he just started getting the instructions in 25. Is he done with the instructions? Okay, well, yeah, tent. Okay, well, a tabernacle is a tent. Okay, right? So now, this is going to, now, hey, just keep in mind, everyone pay attention. This is important, okay? Just keep everyone paying attention. We're going to have to answer a question, and I don't know if we're going to answer it tonight. How many tabernacles were there? Okay, we'll try to get to that in a little bit. But this says tabernacle. All, the King James says tabernacle. Okay, whether you say it's a tent or a tabernacle, there's something. And what does he say? Take the tent to tabernacle and pitch it. 
without the camp. Afar off from the camp. Does the NIV stress that it's afar from the camp? Some distance away. Now, why? Why? Why would it? Look, just from the text. Don't use any theology. Don't use any commentary. Why does it have to be far from the camp or outside of the camp? Because if he's in the midst of them, he's going to destroy all of them. Well, that's what. Why was he saying he was going to build one in the midst? Well, now there's going to be a tent outside. Okay, well, I'm gonna, we're building the answer. Okay, we're building the answer. All right, here we go. So, he came to pass when Moses went out, or hang on, um, verse 7, and Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You may want to write that down. Tent of meeting. The King James calls it tabernacle of the congregation. Everybody see that? And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. How many times does it tell you it's not in the camp? Three times in one verse it tells you it's not in the camp, right? Do you think the writer is trying to signify something? All right, hey, now, now, now listen. Three times it's told it's without the camp. The people can go out there to seek the Lord, but God can't be in the midst of them. Now, on one hand, you can say, well, why would God even do this? The whole basis of doing this is because of his covenant, because of the promise he made, right? He can't destroy these people, but he knows if he's in the midst of them, he will. So how is he ever... Look, whenever we see a picture of the tabernacle, where do we always see it? And for those listening online, I'm holding up a poster of the tabernacle. Where is it? In the middle... And there's tents all around it. It's the center. He's in the midst. Well, wait a minute. This is this tabernacle of the congregation or tent of meeting is not in the midst. So is this the same thing as that tabernacle? And if it's different, how do we get from here to there? I think everybody should be like, I I need to know, I need to know, right? Okay, all right, here we go. I'm not saying we're going to come up with an answer, but we're we're definitely going to be asking good questions, right? Sometimes a good question is better than a a right answer, okay? Maybe, maybe not, all right. Here we go, so I'm going to read this again, all right. Uh, And it came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. Now, please note, Moses can go in. Yeah, you're going to go to it. But Moses is the one who seems to can go into it, right? Yes? Okay. Yeah, problem, problem. I, th- I think there's some. Uh, I think that's at least good speculation. The text may not say, but when he goes, everybody's like, <laughs> "Here goes Moses." Like, is he is he getting ready to die? Maybe. I mean, I put it this way: they definitely take great notice of him going, right? All right, they they de- definitely take note. Okay. Um, and it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle. The cloud pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door and for all and all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. They stay in their tent. They stay next to their tent. Do they not? They stay at their tent door. But Moses is literally like in the presence of God. Now that, you, I, what, what's the question we should all ask? Well, why? How come? There's something going on here. There's, there's something, there's some kind of picture being developed here. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Or someone else is in the tabernacle, all right? And Moses said unto the Lord, See thou... See thou sayest unto me, bring up this people. Thou hast not let, not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. 
yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me how thy way that I might know thee, that I might find grace in thy sight, and consider this nation that this nation is thy people. And he said, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. So Moses is very concerned that who is with them? God is with them, right? So, but get what, what is Moses doing again? Interceding. There's more intercession. In fact, think about it in a roundabout way. Not only is he interceding, the mediation is kind of there, right? Can the people talk to God like this? No. Moses is, in a sense, talking to God on behalf of the people, and he's talking to the people on behalf of God. So in a sense, Moses is serving as a prophet and as a priest, right? He's serving two elements here, right? Everybody see that? Right? And, he's, uh, and he said, okay, verse 20, 15, and he said unto him, if thy presence go not with me, carry us up, not up thence, uh, hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth? And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. Now it seems that because of Moses interceding, God is now going to say he's going to go up with them in some way, shape, or form, right? Something seems to be changing. Because he, he sent the angel before them. The tent is now where? Outside the camp. But Moses seems to want God right there somehow connected his presence to be there. So far, so good. All right? And verse, uh, verse 18, And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man shall see me and live. Now I know that seems confusing because it says it talked to him face to face, but yet somehow that doesn't mean that he was seeing the fullness of God in some way, shape, or form. All right. Um, and the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Now that whole scene seems absolutely bizarre and crazy to me, right? Does it seem like out of the... Does that not seem kind of weird to you in this entire whole parentheses? But somehow he's like, you're going to see me, but you're not going to see all of me. But I'm going to be with thee in some way, shape, or form. Now, in some ways, in some ways, this, I'm not saying this is a perfect picture, but remember, I think this entire parenthesis is still pointing out how ultimately God will dwell in the midst of sinful people, right? So somehow, for him to dwell in the midst of sinful people, some part of his glory has to be what? Hidden. There has to be something between God and us or we would be consumed. That seems to be the idea. Agreed? All right. Now, in the tabernacle, there's some truth to this, right? Are the people allowed to go into the Holy of Holies? No, there's a separation, right? Outer, what is the, uh, is it the uh, three parts? Outer court, inner court, and the Holy of Holies. There's a separation, right? In Christ, all, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, but it dwells in a physical body, right? So when you look to Christ, in some ways you were seeing God, but were you seeing the full glory of God? Not in a sense, because it was covered with human flesh. So in the same way, that, that maybe, is he giving kind of a clue to how somehow he's going to be able to dwell in the midst of them? I don't know. It's just... The story, the story just makes no sense from any other perspective, does it not? It seems odd. 
as his full glory. Right. Because if we saw the full glory, it seems that what would happen? Nobody can see him and live. Right? Seems to be the case. All right. So that's all of 33. That's all of 33. All right. Now, I'm going to read kind of a summary of 33. They go into great detail here. And let's see how they put this together and if they add something here that we can. I think they're going to quote, they're going to do more quoting of scripture here, but we've already read it, so we won't have to read their quotations. It says, up until now, up till chapter 33, the question was whether or not the entire nation would be annihilated. We've already demonstrated that that's true textually. Agreed? All right, okay. Now the question is whether or not God will be present with his people as they make their way to Canaan. Can we agree that that's the main emphasis in 33? 32, God's going to destroy all the people. Are they even going to live? In 33, the issue is, is God going to go up with us? Or Moses is saying, God, you have to go up with us. All right, agreed? Okay, I'm, I'm hoping everyone agrees. All right, then they quote a law, like three verses there, which we've already looked at. Now, I'm going to read this. Ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, man's sin has been a barrier to his fellowship with God. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? How can sinners draw near to a holy God? Up till now, access to God has been achieved individually by means of a blood sacrifice. But now Israel, a nation of many people, Israel's sin of idolatry in the shadow of the mountain where God was meeting with Moses was a reminder of just how serious the problem was. And remember, it's a perpetual problem, is it not? Okay, now the nation has survived, but they are soon uh, to press on towards Canaan. How can God be among this people without destroying them? That is now the issue before Moses. Can we agree that is an issue? If I'm in the midst of them, what's going to happen? I'm going to consume them. Remember, we read that literally in the text. Okay, and so we have weird, in a sense, two weird things happen, right? Weird thing number one is the tent of congregation or meeting is put outside the camp. That seems odd, right? And then the second weird thing is this whole thing with Moses saying, your presence has to go up with us, but let me see your glory. And then this weird thing hiding him in a rock, he can only see the back parts. The whole thing is odd, right? But it has to have something to do textually with this issue, well, then how can God go up with this sinful people? Agreed? Okay, well, at least I, I, I'm convinced it has to. Okay, all right. Um, how can God be among this people without destroying them? This is now the issue before Moses. The people realize the seriousness of the situation and strip off all their jewelry. We read that in Exodus 32, 4 through 6, did we not? Now, this is, this is speculation from an article. All right, are you ready? They, their best guess is why they have to strip off their jewelry is that much of that jewelry had associations with pagan deities and heathen worship. That's their argument. All right? Maybe it did. Maybe it did. Maybe it had some association. Could you think of another reason why maybe they had to strip off all their jewelry? They think it may have had some association with heathen deities. Well, God commands them to. Why do you think God would have possibly want to remove their jewelry? Just think back to this morning. Thank you. Okay, there's a, the, last, the last time, what did they do with their jewelry? They turned it into a golden calf. So maybe this is like, just get rid of all of it. Get rid of all of it, right? So if they don't have gold, if they don't have jewelry, maybe they cannot make another idol. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. That, that to me is a more practical reason. They can't remake, right? Right. Well, that other idol had been destroyed and grinded down and they had to drink it, right? All right, so. But the heart is that, right, the ultimate idol, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, true. But that happens over and over in Scripture. But tr- it's very true. All right. Um, it says, uh, it says, uh, okay, then in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 30, uh, is it 33? Yeah, 7 through 11. We are told about Moses meeting with God at the tent of meeting. Do we agree that we, that's all there? 
We read all of that, yes? Okay, now, they focus on a, they go a different direction with this. Are you ready? Here's the direction they focus on. Why would this account of Moses' intimacy with God be included? To them, they, they look at it and they're like, well, wait a minute. But I, I do love the fact that they're doing the same thing I'm doing. They're, they're, per, they're perplexed and as confused as I am by the whole, inst, inst, the whole, everything going on here. They're like, why would, in the middle of this parentheses, they emphasize this closeness, this intimacy between God and Moses. All right. You may want to write that down. I think it may be the, it may be a good answer to a lot of this, but we'll see what they're going to do with it. All right. We're going to see what they're going to do with it. Here we go. I believe, and now here, here, here's what they want us to know. They believe it is because the author wants us to understand that Israel's only hope is the success of Moses' intercession based upon his relationship with God. So they, they focus on that they think the reason this has to happen is they're like, hey, look, the only hope Israel has is the success of Moses' intercession with God. I do believe that's very true that Moses is the key here. He's the mediator. He's the inter, he's the intercessor, right? But I think it could be pointing this. I think all of this points to the, let me state it again. All right. This entire situation, Moses serves as like the key to how God is ever going to dwell in the midst of them. In fact, Moses in some ways is the key that points ultimately to the tabernacle, well, I think ultimately points to Christ, right? Because Moses serves as what? Let's go through this again. A mediator, advocate, intercessor, judgment. Of course, we throw in judgment that's kind of connected. Moses is at least involved in the conversation about it, right? And then, and atonement. And here he's interceding again. But this is all interesting and in how... This happens, right? It's all weird the way this goes on. I think in some ways, Moses is once again kind of serving as a picture of Christ, right? In the beginning, the word was with God and was God. Now, Moses isn't God, but he stands in close proximity to God. When the text says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, it's literally the idea of being face to face with God, right? And then all of the glory of God is hidden in Christ, right? Now, Moses is hidden so that he can see part of the glory, but there's still a similarity and a correlation in some ways. Let's see which direction they take this. I think it's ultimately pointing maybe to Christ. All right, but here we go. Moses pitched his tent outside the camp, apart from the people. If they chose to worship, they must also go outside the camp to worship at the tent of meeting. When Moses entered that tent, the Shekinah glory, the visible manifestation of God's glory, descended upon the tent. Inside the tent were no no one but Moses, and perhaps Joshua entered. God spoke with Moses intimately. This was indeed something unique. can, Can we agree there's something unique going on here with Moses? Hopefully everyone will say yes to that. Only someone on such intimate terms with God could successfully intercede on Israel's behalf. Moses was the man of the hour. Now I'm going to take a little, I'm going to take a little bit back from that. They're giving Moses too much credit here, right? They're trying to say like, well, Moses is this great, amazing guy. I think Moses has been chosen by God. Is Moses a great guy? He's already killed someone, right? He's already murdered someone, no matter how you want to get around it. He's not even going to make it to, he's a sinner like everyone else, right? Let's at least talk. So they want to kind of say, Moses, Moses is the man of the hour. But I think Moses is the man of the hour because he's being used as a picture and a type to solve this entire perpetual problem. For the perpetual problem to be ultimately dealt with, you have to have someone stand in between you and God. And Moses and everything he's doing is pointing to the ultimate tabernacle, the physical tabernacle, which is going to carry on some of these same concepts, right? Yes? The tabernacle is going to be a physical structure carrying out 
some of the very things Moses is doing. Does that make sense? Is judgment, in a sense, going to occur at the tabernacle? Yes, right? In a sense, there's a mediation going to be happening there. Advocacy is going to be happening there. Judgment's going to be happening there. Atonement's going to be happening there. Everything Moses is involved in is ultimately pointing to the tabernacle, and then all of this ultimately points to Christ, which tabernacled amongst us. And and just as, think about it, as Moses is instrumental and pointing to that tabernacle, which is a, does it, does it get rid of the perpetual problem? No, but it solves the issue of how can men with that perpetual problem ever dwell in the midst, or God dwell in the midst of them. Ultimately, it points to Christ who solves the perpetual problem for eternity. Does that make sense? Everybody got that? All right, there'll be a test. All right, all right, here we go. Moses petitions God to be present with Israel as they continue on to Canaan based upon his relationship with God. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have been saying to me, Bring this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. But you said, I know you by name, and also you have found favor in my sight. Now, if you have found, fa- if I have found favor in your sight, show me your way that I may know you, that I may continue to find favor in your sight, and see that this nation is your people. And the Lord said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Now, that's Exodus 33, 12 through 14, all right? Um, well, they, they get into a big discussion about some, some, some different words here that I don't want to get into because I think we'll, we'll, we'll lose something here, all right? I think we'll lose something there, all right? Um, Moses is assured of God's presence and of God's rest. I do agree that for the, pri- the primary focus, I, can we agree? Look at Exodus 33, 12 through 14 and see if we can at least agree here. That the main thing God is promising in 33, 12 through 14 is that he's going to go with Moses. Can we agree there? With thee. And the thee there is Moses. Can we agree? All right. Now, they're emphasizing then for God to be with them, what, what is it dependent upon at least initially? Moses. All right? Now, I think this is all happening here in this parenthesis. That in other words, for them to dwell, for God to be present with the people, Moses is absolutely critical to the entire situation. For God to ever be Dwell in the midst of us, who is absolutely critical to the situation? Christ. All right, I think it's trying to demonstrate, again, you need a mediator, you need an advocate, you need an intercessor, you need someone there. And they're they're emphasizing that, okay? I, I think we can agree to that, I think. I think we can agree to that, all right? Um... Now, in fact, they, they become very uh, dogmatic in, their, in this article. Moses is assured of God's presence and God's rest, but not Israel as a nation. They're saying the promise is primarily for Moses. I think there's some truth to that, but it seems if Moses is there, then God will be there, so there the people will then ultimately benefit. All right, all right. Moses could have used his special relationship with God to further his own interest at Israel's expense. And said, Moses used his relationship with God as the basis for his intercession with God on Israel's behalf. I think that's a beautiful picture. In other words, Moses doesn't say, oh, hey, forget the people. Me! Focus on me! Right? But he, in a sense, because of his close relationship with God, he uses that for the benefit of the people. Christ had a special relationship with the Father, right? His only begotten Son. Yet, he did not seek being equal with God as something to pursue, but he laid down his glory for what purpose? To die on the cross for us, for our benefit. You see how this is still, uh, the correlation is still there in very very specific ways? I think the scripture does say that, does it not? Yeah, I think it's, but you're seeing the same similar idea, right? What, what they're trying to develop is what's key to this entire situation at this point? 
Moses, an intercessor, an advocate, a mediator. The people have no hope apart from Moses in this particular situation. Right? Does that make sense? All right. Um, and Moses and says, and Moses said to him, if, you, if your presence does not go with us, do not take us up from here. Now Moses brings in the people, right? He's just talking about us. He doesn't talk about himself. For how will it be known that, that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we will be distinguished, I and your people, from all the people who are on the face of the earth? The mediation of Moses is based upon his intimate relationship with God. He petitions God to go with the Israelites to Canaan because he has found favor in God's sight. Moses contends that the evidence of his being in good standing with God will be demonstrated by God's presence with Moses and the nation. In response to Moses' request, God consents to abide in the midst of his people. Because of his great regard for Moses, the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing also that you have requested for which you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. All all beautiful, right? So, according to this, let's make sure we understand this. Do the people have a perpetual problem? What is that perpetual problem? Idolatry. Because of their perpetual problem, can God dwell in their midst? No. Why? Because he will consume them. Moses begins to intercede. His intercession, first of all, takes care of which problem? Them being consumed. Now, it's not ultimately, of course we know, it's not ultimately his intercession because it's really based on God's covenant. But Moses' intercession plays a part in this, yes? Okay, all right. The second problem was, no, he's going to destroy them. He says, I can't go up with you. I can't be in your midst of you, right? So will God destroy the people the way that's avoided and at least in part is Moses' intercession. Can God be in the midst of them? The only way this can be fixed, once again, it requires whom? Moses' intercession. Does everyone see this? So in both cases, Moses serves as a mediator, an advocate, and an intercessor in order for, for anything to even work, which obviously points to Christ. And I, I believe it points to the physical tabernacle. I believe it points to the physical tabernacle is what I believe it ultimately points to. So far, so good? Now, here we go. Now, everyone, I think it's verse 12. I think, is it verse 12 of chapter 33? Yeah. Um, well, it, uh, it may be verse 18. Look at verse 18. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Everybody see that? And verse 18, now, I cannot speak for you, right? But I've already tried to indicate to me, this, this is bizarre to me. This is crazy to me. I don't know what's going on here. It makes no sense in the whole flow of things because all of a sudden, what is Moses, de- what is he doing? What is he doing? Why, why all of a sudden out of nowhere, he's like, hey, I know we have a perpetual problem. I know we're that close for the people being wiped off the face of the earth. And I know I'm doing everything in my power to ensure that you go with us. But you know what? I need to see what? What does he say in verse 18? Show me your glory. That, does anyone understand what's going on here? Now, this article, they have their, their, they have their suggestion, right? Here's what they say. But they, they're just as confused about it by me. They say what Moses does next is truly amazing. He requests that God show him his glory. Now, they go on to say, I have long wondered what the relationship was between God granting his request to abide among the Israelites and the request to behold God's glory. They're just as confused as well. Like, what's the connection? Why do you go from, hey, you, we need, I need you to go with me. I need you to go with us, right? And God's like, okay, okay, I'll go up with you, right? And then all of a sudden, Show me your glory. Like, what's, what's the connection? What's the correlation? And, and it, I, I don't know. It, like, it's baffling to me. Like, I'm trying to picture, like, but, and somehow I think it's got to connect to the tabernacle 
Because remember, this is all happening in the middle of the instructions to the tabernacle. Remember that. Like, the place of this in the text is fascinating to me, right? And so, because it fits in that parentheses, it has to fit, fit, fit in the larger parentheses of somehow this has to do with Christ. But I don't quite grasp it. Let's see what they're going to do. What, how, what they're, they, if they offer a suggestion, right? Because I, I don't know if I can understand this, all right? All right. Here is my best understanding. This is the article. This is their best understanding. As a result of Israel's great sin, the true character of Moses has become more and more apparent. I don't know here. Okay, here we go. Moses is a man who is God's interest at heart, as we can see in verses 11 and 13 of chapter 32. You can look at 11 and 13 of chapter 32. Does Moses seem to have God's interest at, at heart? 32, 11 through 13. Do you, do you see that? What do you think? Do I think it demonstrates that he has God's interest at heart? Uh, 32, 11 through 13. All right. Right. So they're say he's saying he's focused on, on 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 God's interest. Okay, I think there's a little bit of truth to that. All right, and and uh, and I uh, see as we can see in verses eleven thirteen of chapter thirty two. And the closer the closer Moses draws to God, the more God manifests Himself to Moses the greater the intimacy of their relationship. I think maybe there's a little bit of truth to that. When God granted Moses' request, it stirred even greater love for God, and this caused him to desire to know God more intimately. Okay. They try to look at it from a very practical way. See, Moses, was as he drew closer to God, he wanted more intimacy with God, which drew him closer to God. Okay, that's a real practical way. I think there's something, I still think there's something picturing, it's got to be connected to two things. I'm still, look, I'm, I'm going to go down swinging on this. I don't care how many articles disagree with me. It's got to have something to do with the tabernacle and it's got to have something to do with Christ. Nothing else makes any sense. Now, the reason I say this is this parenthesis is happening where? In the midst of instruction on how to build the tabernacle. I cannot, everyone has to have that down. Where does this parenthesis occur? In the middle of the instructions to build the tabernacle. This cannot just be like, oh, forget the tabernacle. I just, I, I cannot do that. There's something here that points to the tabernacle. And I think there's something here that points to Christ because Christ tabernacled amongst us. There's something here. Well, see, that's that's discount. That's where that's kind of where they're going. That it's intimacy. I see. That's where I'm having the problem. I don't. I don't see a practical implication here. I think it's got to point to the tabernacle. It's got to point to Christ. Right? He wants to see His glory. Right? To see His glory means. God's going to be right there. He's going to be right there in the, in, in a sense, he's in the midst with God, right? God is in the midst with him. He's together. But can God ultimately, can he see him that way? No. So in other words, for God to dwell in the midst of the people, there's got to be some way for this to occur. And this kind of hints at the way. What's the way here? Yeah, Moses is hid inside a, a rock, right? And then he can only pass by. He cannot see his full glory. I'm going to go back to it. In the tabernacle, do the people see the full glory? No, they see part. Right? Does that make sense? In Christ. We do behold his glory as of the only begotten, but it is, the glory is what? 
Are, when, you, when they saw Christ, did they, were they consumed? No, it was hid inside the body, right? In a sense, it was hid. Like, I know nobody may want to use those words, but come on. Clearly, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelled in Christ. Yes, does anyone deny that his deity? No, but we are not seeing the full manifestation of his glory, right? Because in the incarnation, in a sense, he laid aside, not his deity, but his glory, and took upon human flesh. So it was hidden there. The same concept is taking place, right? Now, how then do we, or how are we ever going to dwell in the midst of God and see his full glory? How is it ever going to happen? How are we ever going to be in the midst of God and see his full glory? How is it ever going to happen? We have to be in, we have to be hid in Christ, who is our rock. Right? We have to be hid in him. It's setting up a principle. For, for people to be able to behold the glory of God, there has to, it has to work in a certain way. For the tabernacle, it works in a certain way. In Christ, it works in a certain way. And ultimately, it works with us being hid, and then we get to see his full glory. But we're, not, we're no longer hid in a way that we can't see all of it. We're hid in a way so that we can experience all of it. But it's being hid in Christ. Does, does everyone understand that? I know they're going in a different way. I just don't think this is about, hey, Moses was such a great guy. And he loved, and the closer he got to God, the more intimacy he had. And the closer we get to God, the, I, I don't, I, this, this has to be about the tabernacle and about Christ. I, I, nothing else makes any sense to me. All right. Let me read it again. All right. This is there. This is there. Look, you may want to go with their perspective. You're free to be wrong. I mean, I'm sorry. You're free to go along with them. Okay. All right. Here we go. The closer Moses draws to God, the more God manifests himself to Moses. The greater the intimacy of their relationship. When God granted Moses' request, it stirred even greater love for God, and this caused him to desire to know God more intimately. If God would show Moses his glory, that would be the most intimate intimate interaction they have yet had. That To me, that makes no sense in the narrative. Just out of the blue, the author wants us to know, Look at how intimate Moses and God was. No, this has something to do with the tabernacle since this is happening in the midst of the instructions. That's going to be my argument. All right. Going to be my argument, but all right. Okay, here we go. Um, If God would, uh, see, let me put it another way. Now, Now he's going to state it another way. Israel has sinned greatly. Can we all say amen to that? Amen. They do not deserve to exist. Can we say amen to that? Amen. Let alone to have God dwelling in their midst. Can we say amen to that? All right. But but due to Moses' intercession, God has shown great mercy and grace towards Israel and great love for Moses. Seeing this prompts Moses to ask to know God even more intimately. The more Moses knows of God, the more he wants to know him. God's glory is evident in his dealing with Moses and Israel, and this makes Moses want to behold even more of of God's glory. Now, once again, they just, they seem to, on one hand, they're so good with the narrative, and then they seem to abandon the narrative and then say, look, hey, you know what you can take from all of this? Because Moses was so close to God, he wanted to see more of God. And because he wanted to see more of God, God showed him more of himself. And by showing him more of himself, Moses then wanted to know more of God. Therefore, this is a beautiful, intimate relationship between God and Moses. That makes no sense to me. Does, does everyone see where I, I, why I say it makes sense? Now, I know that's the way you may want to think about it because that's practical preaching and everyone loves practical preaching. I'm throwing out the practical preaching. I believe this entire thing, it's illustrating something. All right? So, what is it illustrating? For God to dwell in the midst of his people. Are the people sinful? Yes. Obviously, even Moses cannot behold the glory of God perfectly. Why? 
He's a sinner. Oh, see, they, they've ignored that part, have they not? Even, can Moses see God's full glory? He has to be hidden in a rock, right? Why? Because he's a sinner, okay? So this is establishing how then is God ever going to dwell in the midst of the people? And the only way it's ever going to happen is they're not going to be able to see the full glory. God's going to be there, but they cannot manifest his full glory. How does this occur in the tabernacle? There's an outer court. Okay, there's the outer court. Can all the people go to the inner court? No, not all the people can go to the inner court, right? So the outer court, the inner court. Only someone can enter it from the inner court into the Holy of Holies once a year. And what do they have to bring with them? Blood, right? They have to bring blood, Correct. Okay, so this is a picture that not everyone, and of course that all pictures the ultimate high priest, right? Okay, so, but immediately that shows you the only way God's going to be able to dwell in the midst of them is in a sense it's going to have to be, that glory is going to have to be hidden to some level. Can we agree? All right. In Christ Jesus, the God, the full glory of God dwells, right? In a bodily form. For Christ to walk in the midst of sinful men, He had to lay aside his glory. And remember, he even prays for him to receive his glory again when he's at the right hand of the Father, right? Now, Christ comes. Now, in a sense, he serves as the high priest who sacrificed, and then he takes that sacrifice into the holy of holies, in a sense, before God. Now, as a result of that, how then can we enter into the Holy of Holies? How can we get to Revelation where God can dwell amongst us? Because now we are hidden in Christ. Does everyone see how that works? Y'all kind of looking at me like it makes no sense. Does it make sure it makes sense? Right? That, look, if you have a different way of interpreting it, by all means, go ahead. All the practical ways I don't think works. I think it makes no sense. If this wasn't taking place in the midst of the instruction of the tabernacle, then I would do everything in my power to separate it from the tabernacle, but I cannot separate it from the tabernacle because it's literally happening in the midst of the tabernacle. All right? So, chapter 32, what was the emphasis? Are the people even going to survive? How did they survive? Okay, Moses serves as a mediator, an advocate, he intercedes, there is judgment, and there's atonement. Chapter 33, what's the issue? Will God be in the midst of them? Is he going to go up with them? And what is the solution once again? The, the mediation, advocacy, and intercession of Moses. All right? And then there's this bizarre story where out of just all, all of a sudden, he's like, okay, thanks, you're going to go up with us. I need to see it. And you're like, what is going on here? That, to me, illustrates how God is going to dwell in the midst of them. Moses asking to see the glory, that entire story points to how God is going to, go, going to be able to dwell in the midst of them. They're going to have to be hidden from it in some way, and they're not going to be able to see the full effect of it. Now, that brings us to 34, and we're way out of time. All right, any questions? No. All right. Okay. All right. Now, everybody wants to look at 34, but we can't. Okay. We can't. We'll look at 34 on Wednesday. After we finish 34, we're going to have to go into 35. Then when we go to 35, then we'll step back. But remember, we still ask the question, how many tabernacles are there? Just remember. We've already seen that one, the tent of meeting was where? Outside the camp. Right now, we still got to get got to get it into the middle of the camp, and I think the middle of the camp. The only way I think this entire parentheses 30, 32, 33, and thirty four. I'm just going to make the argument is giving us the why and the how God is going to be able to dwell in the midst of us, and it ultimately points to Christ, the tabernacle, who does really all the work of the tabernacle on our behalf, so that we can get through. Remember. The parentheses, there's the parentheses that we are living in is in the parentheses between the garden 
and revelation where God is going to dwell in the midst of man. In the meantime, we're in this parentheses. And the only way for us to get there is someone has to do the work of Moses, and Moses is pointing to the work of the tabernacle, which all points to Christ. And through Christ's work, for those of us who are in Christ, he will dwell in the midst of us at the end. All right. This parentheses here points to the greater parentheses, and it points to the ultimate solution. And the tabernacle, if Moses is pointing to the tabernacle by his actions, then the tabernacle points to Christ, who tabernacles amongst us, and it points to the work of Christ, which then solves the entire parentheses. Two parentheses, in a sense, two ultimate tabernacles, right? Two, in a sense, mediators, advocates, intercessors. You see how it all fits together. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, as we continue to try to unpack this very, very complicated, very complicated section of scripture that we often just preach in a very law-based way, I hope we're seeing the beauty of the gospel and what you have done for us. Because without Christ, you could not dwell, we could never dwell in your midst and you could not dwell uh, amongst us. And we know that ultimately that day will come, but it will be for those of us who are in Christ Jesus and because of all of his work. Let us be grateful and rest in that and not in what we can, sh- can or should do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,